Turning to 1 John chapter 3, as I came in this morning, I noticed a lot of uh, family and friends here, and want to welcome you. I'm glad that you're with us. Some folks haven't seen for a while, and and it's uh, and it's encouraging to see you. I want you to know that when you come, and you're with us. It's an encouragement, blessing to me personally, and I know to people around you also. Um, I'm especially encouraged to see uh, Gene, Shed, and Mike Guthrie, whom I've been praying for, and I know a lot of other people have been praying for, and just your presence here. I know that uh, you're struggling physically right now, and we just you're, you're in our prayers. Um, also glad to have Jim, and I saw Steve. I'm not sure about Karen. Where's I know? And boy, as a person who has done a lot of traveling in my life and gone a long ways on planes, my heart has really been with uh, Karen this past um, two or three weeks. Uh, she was in Russia, her first trip there to see Phil, uh, their son, who's doing some work in uh, Tomsk. And uh, boy, her got sick. And that's one of the worst things you can do is go overseas and get sick in a strange country and you don't understand what's the language and, and it's just it's tough. And so my prayers have been with Karen also. Uh, if you're if you're here if you weren't here last week, that's the way I need to say that. I'm gonna try and tie in last week's lesson because these these two go hand in glove, and I hope I'm not gonna be confusing to you. Uh, if if you have a lot of questions and you have enough time, you might want to get online and listen to last week's lesson. That might help you if you're if you misunderstand or don't quite click what I'm trying to say today. But last week I had a lot of conversations. I had emails, I had text messages, I had um, conversations with uh, several people over last week's lesson, and not in so much a complimentary way as in a conviction way. People were saying the lesson was convicting. And I'm not saying it had anything to do with me. I mean, I presented it. I study God's Word. I share it with you. But it's God's Word that, that pricks our hearts, that, that, help, that helps us see our need for Him. Um, last week... Basically, the section we're looking at, chapter 3, verses 4 through 10, talks about, I, I try to help us see how we all sin. And the first step into learning, in learning how not to sin, is to recognize the present sin in my life. If I don't recognize sin in my life, I'm not going to stop doing it. One person said, and this, this actually represents several conversations, said something like this. I realized that in the past I had been the sinful woman. We looked at Luke chapter 7. And if you're unfamiliar with that story, there's a story about uh, Jesus and he's having dinner with a Pharisee. And this woman comes in who was known as a sinful woman. And she weeps at his feet and washes his feet with her hair. And Simon is looking on there and saying, oh, if he, if this man were a prophet, if Jesus were truly a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman this is. He wouldn't let her be doing this. And so Jesus tells this story about two people who owed money. One owed a great deal of money and one owed a little. But neither one could pay the debt. And so 
the debt collector, the one who they owed money, canceled the debt of both. And the point of that is we all recognize the depravity of this sinful woman, but we're not quick to understand the depravity of our sinful self. We're often the Simon who owe a little, not a lot. We owe a little, but we don't realize we can't pay that debt. And so this person said, I realized in the past I've been the sinful woman and I've grown out of some of these things. I've matured in Christ. I've gotten rid of some of these big sins. And I thought I was doing well. Only to discover I'm Simon. I was sitting there thinking how well I have done and proud of it. And not really realizing how sinful that was. And the point is only Jesus can cancel our debt. No matter how great it is or how small it is, he's the only one that can cancel that debt. We also notice how insidious sin is in our lives. I'm talking about us who are Christians. And I'm not talking about the felony sins. that I, I, I refer to them as felony sins. And, you know, the big things that we are ashamed of. You know, the large sins. The greater sins. But we're trapped and consumed by all sorts of little sins, those attitude sins. The little things that we, that we don't often think of as sin, as impatience, selfishness, anger, materialism, gossip. And so we, we looked at this story and I said this is the story of the sinful woman and the occasional sinful man. And we are not occasional sinners. We're habitual sinners. Lee brought it out really well as we took the Lord's Supper. Uh, He said right at the beginning, um, I have sinned this week. And I'm sure you have too. And if we all have the time to come up and just say, if I have or have not, or if I ask you to raise your hand, most, I think... I like to say every Christian would raise their hand and say, you know, this week I have sinned. We talked about what this passage did not say last week. It's not saying the Christian is sinful or that a Christian even occasionally sins. It's neither what is called the doctrine of perfection. You can get to the point where you never sin. Or it's not what I call the doctrine of the occasional sin. That we just occasionally sin, we occasionally need God's help. What does it say? That's what we're going to look at today. I think when we grasp this, when we begin to grasp it, you know the three reasons, if you've been with us, you know the three reasons John wrote this letter. He, he tells us the three reasons. So that your joy may increase, so that you will not sin, and so that you'll know that you have eternal life. And as we look at this passage, it almost is counterintuitive. We don't want to admit that these little faults and these inconsistencies in our lives are actually sins. That my impatience, my frustration, my little anger nailed Jesus to the cross. I understand that about murder. I understand that about adultery. I understand that about lying in a big way. Whatever the big sins are. Falling down and worshiping an idol. You know, the big sin, I understand those sins put Jesus on the cross. But what we don't understand is my little sin this week put Jesus on the cross. 
And that's what we have to remember. We want to be able to handle those things. We want to be able to say, you know, these little sins, I can handle that. And when we do that, it leads us to a life of frustration. Think about this with me. It's the opposite of joy. When I get to the point that I think I can, I can handle my own sins, it actually steals my joy. Because several things happen. I don't clearly see sin in my life. That will cause me to increase in my sin because I begin to excuse my sin. I begin to justify my sin. I'm blind to my sin. I say, well, that's, that's just not a sin. It's just, it's a fault. It's a, it's a weakness. It's a whatever. We put that over there and we don't see it as sin in our lives. And then there's that lingering, nagging, nagging thought, wondering if, does God save me? Has he forgiven me? And we grow in doubt instead of assurance. I think this section that we're going to look at is an expansion of chapter 2, verse 1. I write this so that you will not sin. And so today, I hope we're going to see how this passage will help us not to sin. Do you remember last week I asked you two questions as we began? I asked you the question, did you sin this past week? And I proposed that the answer is yes. And then if you can't answer that, yes, I asked this question, did you live the perfect life? It's asking the same question in a different way. And the answer is no. No, I, I know I didn't live a perfect life. Maybe I can't remember particular sins, but I know I didn't live a perfect life. And if you did, ask your wife, <laughs> your husband. They'll help you out. And this week I want to ask two questions also that will help us understand this passage. Did you want to sin this past week? Was it your aim to sin this past week? Did you make it your goal to sin this past week? And I can, I can be as confident with the answer to that question as the first. I think your answer is no as a Christian. You did not start out the week. You do not start out this week. This is the beginning of a new week. And you do not start out as a Christian thinking, let me plan my sin for the week. You don't do it. Did you, do you desire to live the perfect life? Do you desire to live like Christ? Of course I do. That's what I want. That is my goal. That's what I want to do. And so this passage is going to drive us back to who we are, how we live in Christ. Let's read it again together. Verses 4 through 10. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who has been born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God. I want to start out by looking at what our problem is. I, I really struggled how to put this together. I went down and wrote like a half a page of stuff, and then I just scrapped it and said, that's not going to communicate. 
But we want to start out by looking at our problem. What is our problem? Everyone who sins, and that's about as far as we got last week. I don't know if you realize that. We touched on a lot of verses, but that's as far as we got. I stopped right there on sin last week. Everyone who sins. And this is important, as I said before, unless we realize we need a Savior, we won't seek one. And I'm talking about Christians. You know that as a non-Christian. You know that before you became a Christian, you were seeking something. You know you were in trouble. You know you needed salvation. You know you knew where you were headed for. And you needed a Savior and you came to Him. And you're, you, you, in repentance and in confession and in baptism, you put on that new life. But what about now as a Christian? As a Christian, if you think, you know, I got this. I'm handling life pretty well. I've got everything un- under control. If you think that way, you will not rely on God. The only time you will be God-focused is in times of, of emergencies. And you've seen this in your life. You'll be that occasional sinner who needs a Savior occasionally. You just need Him occasionally. You'll be operating on the urgency plan. I know I was looking for Gary. I saw him. I saw his hat. So I know he's somewhere. But Gary does a lot of counseling, and I do too. And many times we have people come to us when they're in trouble. Fix my problem. Drop everything. Come to my rescue. The emergency phone calls. And what we try to do is help people see... That there are things in their lives that they need to be doing so they don't get into that problem. They don't get into the emergency situation. They live from one emergency to the next emergency. They want my help to fix a situation that's out of control. And a lot of us Christians are that way when it comes to sin in our lives. We've got life under control. Everything's fine. We don't need Jesus right now. Everything's cool. But please, Jesus, be on standby when I'm in trouble. And that's how we, that's how we operate. We're, we're like, everything's fine. And then boom, it's out of control. And we go to, oh, please fix this problem. And then we go, okay, I got it now. Thank you. I'm on my, you know, everything's fine. And so these little, what I call the little sins in our lives, the, the misdemeanor sins in our life, they, are, they, they indicate the deep problem we have that we don't realize that we have. We're struggling with sin, sins in our life. The root of our problem, verse 8, is the devil. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Understanding this will help us in our quest not to sin. The devil's direction, what is, what is the devil's direction? Well, we can say it's sin, that's true, but it's rebellion. It's rebellion against God. And John here brings us back to the very beginning, I believe in, in, uh, in chapter uh, uh, 3 of, of Genesis, where he brings us back to remember what the problem was in, in Genesis chapter 3. And I think we further see this in verse 4. Look at verse 4. And I'm, try, I'm, not gonna, I'm gonna do my best not to get real technical here, but it says, everyone who sins breaks the law. If you look in the original language here, it actually says everyone who does the sin. That's what it literally says. 
Our English translations, or many of them, not all of them, but many of them make us think that this passage is saying, anyone who commits sins in their life, in their, during this week, which is all of us, look, look at in, in the NIV, everyone who sins breaks the law. We look at that and say, well, that's me. Everyone who, is, who sins, I sin. But the words there actually say, everyone who commits the sin. And I believe that's important. What is the sin? Going back to Genesis chapter 3. As I said last week, it wasn't eating a piece of fruit. That's not the sin. Here is the sin. Genesis 3 verse 5. Satan says to Eve, You won't die. Because what God knows is when you eat of that fruit, you will be like God. That's the sin. That's the sin that you struggle with in all your little sins. You are trying to be like God. I want to determine what's right and wrong. You see, when, when I justify my sins, you know what I'm saying? I know what's right. That, that's not a sin. That's just a fault. That's not a sin. My aggravation is because of you. You see, it's not a sin on my part. It's something that you've done. And so we'll justify it. We'll excuse it. And we don't realize that we are basically putting ourselves in God's place and saying, we know what's right. We know what's wrong. We make independent decisions away from God. We don't want to listen to a higher authority. Have you ever said, you can't tell me what to do? Have you ever thought it? Normally... In my experience, when I say, in my mind or outward, outwardly, you can't tell me what to do, I'm about to get in trouble. You know? When I have that attitude, it's pride and it's, I am going to do something, even if it's wrong. <laughs> you can't tell me what to do. I become my own authority. I become my own law. I become my own God. I become my own idol. That's the sin. And then we see the devil's work here. God is seen, as you open up the Genesis chapter 1, he's seen as the creator. He creates, he creates, he creates all through that first chapter. And he says, it's good, it's good, it's good. Do you realize Satan never created a thing? Satan's never, he, Satan is not a creator. He's a counterfeiter. He's the, he's the master counterfeiter. He's, he takes good things that God has created and he twists them. He changes them. He just just a little bit so that it so that it's wrong. But you can't see how wrong it is sometimes. In John eight, I think I'm going to read this one. John eight, verse forty four. I can get there fast. Let me read it to you. Jesus is talking to some Pharisees. And don't look down on the Pharisees because often we are so much like them that it's it's. Uh, Distressing. He says to these Pharisees, you belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desire. We're going to hit that in a little while. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. I like that, that phrase. He says when, when, when Satan speaks... When he opens his mouth, he's lying. That's his language. That's his native language. 
His work is imitation. God makes things new. Satan takes, takes things, repackages these things, and makes them seem unique, makes them seem desirable, makes them seem new. But they're not. He didn't create a thing. Only God can build a firm foundation. Satan makes you think what he offers is solid, permanent, but it's temporary. It's weak. It's about to fall apart. God told Adam and Eve, you will die. Satan said, you won't die. He's a liar. And that rebellion led to death. This is the sin. Rebellion against God. And so we look at our problem. Sin in our lives. And it's not only to those who are outside of Christ, those of us who are in Christ. We have this problem of sin. So what's the solution to our sin? John, once again, redirects, redirects our wandering thoughts. It doesn't take one verse for our minds to go the wrong place. We are so quick to get me-focused, and we'll see this over and over in 1 John, and we'll see it in this passage, too. But he, he takes us from verse 4 to verse 5, and he refocuses us once again, and he says, I want you to be Christ-centered in your answer here. And your solution, your solution to sin, you've got to be Christ-centered, not you-focused. And it's so easy for us to become you-focused because we say, what do I have to do? What do I have to stop? What do I have to change in my life? And we focus in on ourselves so much that we don't focus on God. All right, there are some things we do, and we're going to look at that in a minute. The solution starts out first of something you know. In verse 5, look at verse 5. He says, but you know, you know something. And this knowledge is an absolute fact. I know this for certain, for fact. I know that he appeared so that he might take away our sin, and in him is no sin. This is Jesus' purpose for coming to the earth, that he might take away sin. And this, this refers back to chapter 1, verse 3, where it says he appeared. That same word is, it attaches right back to chapter 1, verse 3, where it says Christ appeared for a purpose, and the purpose was for eternal life. So he came to lift a burden off of us. And that's what he said in verse 5 here, when he says to take away our sins, it's lifting a burden. That's the literal meaning of that word. It means to take up something that you cannot carry. And he picked it up off of our shoulders. He said he came so that, we, that he would take this burden of sin that we cannot bear. Take it away. But more than that is to give us eternal life. God came to forgive us and to make us good. God came to forgive us and show us how to be good. God came to forgive us and to give us life. It's more than just forgiveness and then get on with your life. It's forgiveness so that you can live a certain way. And we're going to look at that some more. The second part of the solution is where I am. Verse 6. No one has, who lives in him keeps on sinning, he says. Where am I? I live in him. It's stated in the, in the negative here, but putting it in the positive, we live in him. And that word, live in him, some of your translations will say abide. Twenty-four times this word, abide, or live, is used in First John. And what that means is just a rich, rich word. I've written two pages on the meaning of this word. And let me just go through some of it. It's where we live. It's where we reside. It's where we make our permanent home. It's where we stay in the same place without wandering around. It's where I hold out. It's where I endure. It's where I stand fast. 
It means that Christ is my communion. Christ is my fellowship. Christ is my friend. I'm at home with him. He's my comfort zone. This is where I settle. This is where I persevere. That All that is tied up in this simple little word, I live in him. And it keeps going. The solution continues. The solution is in his work. He came to destroy the, the devil's work. The end of verse 8, he says, the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Going back to Genesis 3 again, the promise was made to that the Christ would, would one day come, the Messiah would one day come and do what? Crush the head of Satan. What happens when your head is crushed? You're dead. And that's what he said. God, the, the Messiah will come to crush the head of, of Satan. The incarnation, what we call the incarnation, God becoming man, his perfect life, in him is no sin, as John said. His death, his resurrection, that's what it did. It destroyed the work of Satan. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Pop down on the screen. So that by his death, Christ's death, he might destroy him who has the power of death. That is the devil. Satan had the power of death. And if you read on the next verse, I love the next verse. He says, for, uh, he destroyed the power of death because for generations, this is a little bit of a paraphrase, for generations people fear death. And we do, we fear death, but, the, but Jesus came to destroy that power of death. Continuing on his solution. We are becoming like him. Look at verse 9. No one who has been born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. Seed. What is that? I tease myself about my garden. You should see my garden. I have this big dirt pile right now with nothing growing. But over the side, I've planted some new seeds. And I put those little seeds in and my peas are coming up. I'm about that high right now. I have these visions of peas that probably will never <laughs> come to fruition. And I have little carrots because one of my grandchildren said, plant carrots. I'm going to get big old carrots. Probably not. But I've got carrots coming up now. And God's seed has been planted in you, he says. And that speaks of growth. Seed speaks of growth. Seed is the beginning. It's just the beginning, and it, and, it, and it implies a process. There's no overnight perfection of sinlessness, but this is a process. God's seed is in us, so there's a, there's a process that's going on in our lives. And he says God's seed remains in the Christian. You know what that word remain is? Abide. That's what it is. God's seed abides it. It lives in you. Its, its permanent place is in you. He is at home in you. All those things I just said. He resides in you. His seed is in you. And furthermore, that speaks of the life of God. The character of God. The nature of God. His family. It actually, the word actually speaks of genetics. Or what we would say, the DNA of God. That would be a fine paraphrase. God's seed, his DNA, his very DNA rests in you, is planted in you. The new birth is incorporated, not only a new, not only has incorporated not only a new beginning, but you have a new nature. 
You're a new creature. You're a new person. You have new DNA when you're born of God. And finally, the solution to our sin problem involves in being his children. Verse 10. This is how we know who the children of God are. This book book ends chapter 3, verse 1. All right, 3 to 1 to 310. What does 3 1 say? How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. Beautiful verse. That we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. I'm glad John put that last part in. Because some people say that we should be called children of God. Yeah, maybe one day. Maybe you, but not me. John says, and that is what we are. When we begin to understand the solution, all these things I've been saying, who I am, what his work was, what we're becoming, when we begin to understand those things, there's a result. And now we're going to get into the difficult part of this passage. Verse 5. He takes away our sin. Do you notice the first thing, the results? It's Christ-centered. It's God-centered. I told you it means to take up, lift up. He takes away our sins. He lifts our sins off of us. John the Baptist, what we call John the Baptist, in John chapter 1, I think around verse 29, is pointing him out and he points to Jesus and says, Look, the Lamb of God, what? Who takes away the sins of the world. That's why he came. That's what he does. And I want to ask this question. If our sins have been taken away... Where are they? I'm asking you Christians, okay? If your sins have been taken away, where are they? Looking at some how some Christians act, I wonder if they realize they've been taken away. I work with Christians who carry around a burden that they don't need to be carrying around. And I ask, if Jesus took away your sins, where are they? Either he took them away or he didn't. So it comes right back to our faith. Do I really believe what God said here? He took away our sins. The second result is in verse 7. We are righteous. Do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. I don't, again, I don't want to get too difficult here. But... If you get a literal translation, Young's literal translation, for instance, says this. He who is doing the righteousness is righteous even as he is righteous. And I know you, I know that's just a bunch of, you know, when you have three R's in a row, righteousness, right, Young, it's hard to think. I had to, I had to read this over and over myself. But what he is saying here, he says, he who is doing the righteousness, NIV makes it sound like this. The person who does right things doesn't involve himself in sinful behavior, is a righteous person acting the same as Jesus. Doesn't that what, isn't that what it seems to say in the NIV? One translation, easy revised or something, says this. Christ always did what was right. So be good like Christ. So to be good like Christ, you must do what is right. Where's the focus on those? Right here, on me. I do what is right, and then I'm right. Then I'm righteous. But what he is saying here, he's saying, 
He who is doing the righteousness. What's the righteousness? It's the opposite of the lawlessness, by the way. The righteousness is only in one person. And that's in Christ. Living in a right relationship with God is based on his righteousness and not our good works. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21 says this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. I can't tell if you can see this painting or not very well. But that's Jesus with a royal robe about to put it on that sinner. The righteousness of God is placed upon us. It's imputed to us. It's given to us based on what he has done and our faith in what he has done. That's the righteousness of God. Anything I do right, anything I do good is based on the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God that he has given me. Not based on how hard I try and do things, how good I am. That just leads to frustration. It leads to more sin. When I can recognize that the results of the solution that is Christ-centered is that I am made righteous by his blood. And we will stop sinning. Verse 6 and verse 9. Look, look at these. And I know this is what we struggled with last week. And I know if you're thinking you're struggling with it too. It says, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has ever seen him or known him. Verse 9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. He cannot go on sinning. What in the world does that mean? I think this is, as I said, I think even this is Christ-centered. And if you read different books, you'll, different writers will say different things. They'll go to great lengths trying to explain this. Uh, some will make obscure grammatical guesses over what it says, and I'm not even going to the oblative form of this and that. <laughs> One writer said, verse 9 is the most startling verse in the Bible. But remember, these, these verses will help us not to sin. These verses will help us not to sin. Two thoughts. First, as we read those different expressions, it points to a lifestyle. You will not sin. You cannot keep on sinning. Continue to sin. You will not continue to sin. You will not go on sinning. All those expressions are talking about a lifestyle. And secondly, this lifestyle of not sinning is based on who you are. Who are you? I ask this over and over. Who are you? What does John, John said? You are a person abiding in Christ. You are a person born of God. You are a person who's the seed of God is in you. And so I contend that if you're a Christian, you can only sin when you forget the abiding nature and the new birth. I want to give you an illustration. Now, I want, to, I want you to park there for a minute. You cannot sin if you remember that Christ is in you. You cannot sin when you remember that you're born in you. Here's my illustration. <clears throat> I will not confess this, but have you ever cheated? This is the old-fashioned way of cheating. There has to be some new ways. You know? Elliot, I don't know if you can read that. It's a zero with an equal to whatever. I don't even know if that's the right answer. Elliot might look at that and go, uh, wrote down the wrong answer there. That math problem. Can you cheat? You know, I've known some people who say, I can't cheat. 
What do you mean you can't cheat? You mean you physically can't write notes on your hand and look at them? No, no. What do they say when they say, I can't cheat? They're saying, my... She's coming forward. <laughs> what, she, what, what, we're, what, we're say, what they're, they're saying is, my conscience won't allow me to cheat. I can't cheat. But let's say that you, you plan on cheating. You're in class and you write down the answers on your hand or you slip a, some paper up your sleeve or whatever you do. And then the teacher begins walking around. All right? I used to teach. And I did this. I would suspect someone teaching, you know what I would do? I'd stand right behind that person. And I'd look over their shoulder. Can they cheat? Can they cheat? Not if they're smart, anyway. <laughs> no, I mean, at that point, knowing the teacher is looking, they cannot cheat. And that is, that's the way it is with Christ. Now, I don't want you to think that he's a teacher looking over your shoulder or that he's a policeman looking over your shoulder waiting for you to make a mistake. But what I'm saying is when you are aware, when you are aware that he is in you, that he's living within you, that he abides in you, that you're born in you, when you're aware of that, you cannot sin. Only if you push him out of your life, if you push him out of your mind, then you can sin. But you cannot sin when he's there with you. Let me give you an example from one of my conversations last week. A certain lady, which, you are, which I will not name, says, My husband is wonderful, but sometimes I get aggravated at him. Now, all the women are like, Did I tell him that? <laughs> and she said, You know, I was getting aggravated at him. And I realized... That sin. And I stopped. You see, what we do, we'll justify that. We'll say, it's not a sin. It's just, it's just aggravation. Whatever, I, whatever, whatever way you make an excuse. But when you recognize it for what it is, that is wrong. As a Christian, you can't do it. You will stop. You cannot continue to sin. Just keep on reminding yourself this is a sin. You'll stop yourself. I, I guarantee it. When you recognize this is wrong, this is sinful, this is putting Jesus on the cross. He's right here with me watching me do this. You'll stop doing it. You cannot continue to sin. And verse 10, you will do what is right. Verse 10, this is how the children of God and children of the devil are recognized. Anyone who does not do what is right. It's stated in the negative. But it basically says Christians do right things. In this particular place, right, this is doing right things. The article is not there. It's saying children of God find out what to do. They find out the right thing to do. It's their desire. They want to grow to be more like Christ. They want to know how to do the right thing. First John, I mean, John chapter 8 that we read earlier says these people follow the desire of their father who was Satan. Ephesians 4, sometimes, I can't remember where it is, 4 or 5 says, find out what the Father's will is. Find out what God's will is. And that's what you want. That's your desire. That's what you want to do. When you go through life, you're looking to do the Father's will. You want to do it. And you, and you seek to do what is right. Your lives become characteristic of, of right living and right loving. Titus chapter 2 
verse 14 says it this way. Christ gave himself for us, Christ-centered, to redeem us from all wickedness. It was his sacrifice that redeemed us from all wickedness. And to purify for himself the people. He's the one that purifies, that are his very own. And then this is us. We're eager to do what is good. I know that's what you want to do. If you're in Christ, you want to do what's good. You want to continue to follow him. He died to take away our sins. He died to destroy Satan's work. He died so that we could be made righteous and so that we could live righteously. We're not forgiven to live as we please. We're forgiven so we can live to please him. So how does this passage help me not to sin? Very briefly. It shows me what sin did to Christ. When I recognize what my sin did to Christ, I'll want to stop. When I begin to recognize this, my, my little sins that put Jesus on the cross, I'll want to stop. It shows how he came to forgive me and change me. He's the one that did it. He's the one that sacrificed. He's the one that did all this for me. It shows Satan's work of counterfeiting. I don't want that. You ever, you ever receive a counterfeit note? Uh, angel's business. Back sometime, received two or three counterfeit $20 bills. Did she want those? No, because you go to the bank and give them to them, guess what? You lose it. They just say, sorry, we're confiscating that, and you don't get the money. You lost 60 bucks or whatever it was. We understand Satan's work is counterfeited. We don't want any part of that. And it shows me who I am in Christ. And when we begin to grasp these things, as we will continue in our study, we'll learn how not to sin. Let me read through our paraphrase that seems to help people sometimes, and then we'll be done. This is verses 4 through 10 of this, of this uh, section. Every person whose life's direction is rooted in the practice of the sin breaks the law. To be perfectly clear, the sin is the rebellion against God's loving direction in our lives, his law. But you know as an absolute fact that he came to light, that he appeared in our world for the purpose of lifting off of us the terrible weight of our sins and removing it from us, taking it far away. And there is no sin in him. No one whose, whose life is tied up in him, who is focused on God and his will, has as their goal this rebellious life of sin. No one whose life's ambition is self and whose God is their own desires has come to see him, nor experienced the healing relationship with him. <coughs> Dear ones, don't let anyone take you down the wrong road in this matter of righteousness and sin. If you are living in a right relationship with God, you are righteous according to his righteous character. The one whose life is in rebellion to God's way is of the devil, because from the beginning, rebellion is the path of the devil. The very reason the Son of God came among us was to destroy and crush all what the devil set out to do. All those born of God do not sin because planted in their deepest core is the very DNA of God. They do not have the power or strength or desire for rebellious living, for they are children of God. This is how it is obvious who is a child of God and who is a child of the devil. Anyone whose attitude and direction is not, I desire to do what is right, is not a child of God. And anyone not loving his brother isn't one either. 
I hope you've been encouraged. I hope you've seen. You know, when I'm focused on God, I don't sin. And so what do we need to do? Focus on Him. When you get aggravated at me, just remember who you are. <laughs> when you get aggravated at your spouse, remember, God sees His very DNA is in you. And that is not how I live. And you will change. You will not sin. If you're outside of